What do ancient astronomers, mercenaries, athletes, and politicians have in common? Join your three lame hosts as they take an irreverent, lived-in look at disabled figures from ancient Egypt to the 20th century. Come take a wild and accessible ride exploring a side of history they probably didn't teach you in school. This This is Lame Lame History. History. Hello, my name is Kevin. I'm an author, photographer, and former TV show host who was born without legs. I'm a congenital amputee with double hip disarticulation, which basically just means that no femurs formed in the hip sockets of my pelvis. I live in Montana and typically walk on my hands or use a skateboard to get around. I'm Caitlin Michelle. My friends call me Katie, my students call me Miss, and my twins boys call me Mommy. The doctors who delivered me didn't know what to call me when I was born without a left forearm, and now I guess I can call myself a podcaster. Hello, my name is Scott. I've been in the plumbing, construction, and service industry for almost 20 years, including owning my own plumbing company. I'm a former competitive paraclimber. I was born with only part of my right hand and had several surgeries to Shiner Children's Hospital to increase my dexterity. I'm married to a fellow, now former paraclimber, and we have twin toddlers who outnumber us in digits and outrun us in general. Welcome to Lame History, the podcast about how disability and disabled people help shape the world as we know it today. Let's take a journey back in time to 1960. The Cold War and the Vietnam War cast dark shadows overall. In the U.S., the civil rights movement is gaining momentum. The times are changing. And in the South, where Jim Crow is still alive and well, a small town in Tennessee is celebrating racial unity. The early October air is thick with humidity and excitement as everyone gathers to honor the hometown hero who put their sleepy southern town on the map. The mayor has declared today, Welcome Wilma Day, here in Clarksville, Tennessee. The crowd, filled with black and white faces, shouts and cheers for Wilma Rudolph, a 20-year-old record-breaking athlete returning from the Olympics in Rome with three gold medals around her neck. All look forward to the banquet later this evening because it's not like any other event this town has seen before. Today's parade and banquet, on Wilma's insistence, is the first desegregated event in the history of Clarksville. But before you get too excited, let me assure you that this won't be a story about overcoming racism or of overcoming anything. Because things are way more nuanced than that. So this event was also uh written about in the museum it was just very interesting to know that that was the first time and it was within you know our parents lifetimes all right well let's get into it nothing about wilma glodine rudolph's early life indicated that she would someday become a celebrated track star born to ed and blanche rudolph in saint bethlehem which is now part of clarksville tennessee On June 23, 1940, a premature baby Wilma weighed in at just four and a half pounds. This is uh, still bigger than both of my children at birth, but it's... I was about to say, it's like premature, not even a three-pounder. Okay, but this is 1940. They didn't have all the technology and the (laughs) NICU stuff they have now. I know. That's still pretty amazing. And I do remember that when we we had our boys in the NICU after they were born... They were saying that 30, 32 weekers, which is what our boys was, were, uh, they were, it was completely unheard of even 20 years ago. Even in you the know? 60s. Well, I was in the 60s, that was a death sentence. 
Well, this is the 40s. I know. Yes. This is yes. this is after everyone's coming hot off of a decade of malnutrition from Great Depression. So yes. oh, yeah. impossible. The Great Depression. He's also baby number twenty out of twenty-two. That's <laughs> right. That is one of the things I saw. Yeah, that's that's a tired womb, quite possibly. That well, just... well, no. This is this is uh, his second marriage. After his first wife died, um, he remarried Blanche. He's about I I want to say if I remember correctly, like twenty years older than her. So I think she only had nine nine children six oh, six to nine between okay. there okay only but yeah <laughs> uh yeah okay so she had 21 siblings many of whom were for from her father's first marriage and now i know this is a tangent but i had to include this because it's it's important okay according to the website findagrave.com one of wilma's half sisters was named verdexter which is a choice verdexter Verdexter, yes. And especially since she had siblings with names like Robert and Mary. Anyway, Verdexter went on to marry a man whose last name was Poindexter. So she was Verdexter Poindexter. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you got to get your entertainment however you could back then. That's that's worth a laugh. That's pretty Her good. Her sister was Mary. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, they ran out of bland names. Okay. No, Mary yeah. was born after her. Ah, uh, okay. sometimes no. a baby just comes out with vibes. You know, you look at it and you're like, "Well, it's definitely not a Mary or a Joan." And maybe that's what's what are Verdexter vibes? What are Verdexter vibes? I don't. You know it when you see it. <laughs> oh man! All right. By all accounts, Wilma was a sickly child. Bouts of severe pneumonia and scarlet fever almost killed her as a toddler. And when Wilma's parents noticed her left leg becoming weaker and slightly disfigured, they took her to the doctor who diagnosed her with polio and said she'd never walk again. Unfortunately, 1940s Clarksville was still segregated, and so the local hospital did not admit or treat black patients. So Wilma's mother, Blanche, who stubbornly refused to accept the doctor's prognosis, took Wilma on a bus trip to the historically black Meharry Medical College, which today is called the Nashville General Hospital at Meharry. They made the long journey to and from the hospital together every week for two years. And now we have done, as a family, we have done the drive from Clarksville to Nashville and back several times, and it's about an hour each way. And I imagine that took quite a bit longer via a bus ride. Well, yeah, yeah that's an hour each way now on a modern highway system that didn't exist at that time. Yeah, that's at least that's at least two puke incidents for a son who gets carsick. Yeah. In any case, it was a lot. And that was just the travel. Wilma's treatments were extensive and didn't end with her Nashville hospital trips. At home, her parents and siblings took turns massaging her leg several times a day. And Wilma used mobility aids from leg braces to orthopedic shoes for years afterwards. Her earliest years were spent indoors where she was homeschooled until she started second grade at the age of seven. And now these are her formative years. So it was a tough time to, for her. She felt a lot of loneliness. It was just tough to be indoors all day. Wilma loved to watch her older sister, Yvonne, play basketball. And one day, her mother, Blanche, caught an 11-year-old Wilma playing basketball outside, running around without her orthopedic shoes. And thus began Wilma's athletic career. She joined her school basketball team in eighth grade and officially became a Burt High School Tiger. I was the I was a tiger in middle school. Ah, tigers. Uh, what was I? In? You were Seahawks. Yeah, landmark Seahawks. See, it's weird because the Seahawk is like only something we talk about 
in terms of like mascots because like whoever looks at something goes oh look a seahawk yeah right you know tigers are you know everywhere tigers are a dime a dozen a side note about the school where wilma became a basketball star it was called a high school but from my understanding it actually went from seventh grade all the way through 12th grade so it was kind of like middle and high school but it was called high school so Burr High School in Clarksville, Tennessee was the only all-black high school in the county, so it served as a big cultural hub and meeting area rather than just a school. The significance of this place as a community center for black people living in racially segregated Montgomery County can't be overstated. Burt High School opened in 1923 and was named after Dr. Robert Tecumseh Burt. The son of two former slaves, Dr. Burt graduated from Meharry Medical College, where Wilma had been treated as a child, and opened the Home Infirmary, the first hospital in Clarksville, Tennessee, in 1906. It was also the only hospital in Clarksville until 1916, according to Fisk University professor and historian Linda Wynn. Dr. Burt was a trailblazer in the medical field, performing hundreds of C-section surgeries before they were common practice. He treated both black and white patients in the surrounding area. And I just think that's really important because... The, this is a major accomplishment. These are major accomplishments. Yeah, because you're talking about the, you're 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 talking about their 19 aughts and 1910s. Like that's that's huge. It is, yeah. yeah. And it was the first hospital for a while, several years. All right, Burt High School, which never desegregated, closed in 1970, but was reopened as an elementary school ten years after that. The legacy of VHS is preserved in a wonderful exhibit in Clarksville, Tennessee's Customs House Museum and Cultural Center. In researching Wilma's story, we had the opportunity to visit the museum, and I dragged Scott and and the boys with me. I don't know if we mentioned it on this podcast, but Scott and I are married, and the children that I talk about and he talked about, they're the same children. I think, yeah, it's been mentioned. We've mentioned it. Okay, okay. Are um, you just confirming for yourself? I would say Yes, I don't remember (laughs) On the harder more, days. More relevant would be that Clarksville, Tennessee is where my mother was born. And uh, and so we were there because we were visiting family. And and it was a wonderful museum. No, we, Scott. We, we took a trip because of the importance not, of this story. You did not drag us along. We enjoyed it very much, as well as the great children's area they have on the lower levels of that museum. That's what I was going to say next. If you ever find yourself in Clarksville, I highly recommend checking out the Customs House Museum, especially if you have little ones, because their kids area is awesome and does a great job telling the story of the town, but with the vibes of like an indoor play play, play place. It even has a bubble cave, which was really fun because we actually got to stand inside a bubble and that was a big hit for my three-year-olds. And you said it's about an hour outside of Nashville? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. About, right about Ish. so. Okay. Well, a little bit less. Just you know, it depends if you if you drive like you uh you live there. It's it's a little bit less. If you I, drive I, like Scott drives, which is like a maniac. I twenty four and I forty through Tennessee are basically the autobahn. Our children are backseat drivers, and they're like, "Daddy, not so fast, Daddy." You go too fast, Daddy. Like, too fast, Daddy. Slow down. I don't like fast. Just close your eyes and go to sleep, buddy. We'll be there in five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the museum has a section dedicated to BHS memorabilia and photos. And let me send you a couple of these because it was really cool to see. Crap, I just made the album. Where did I put it? Okay, here. So here they even have some of the old band 
costumes, not costumes, uniforms. There you go. And they're just beautiful. Like I would wear these things just like on a normal day. Really beautiful navy blue cardigan with like uh, the school letter. Oh, you sent them on the phone. Sorry, I was looking in the. Discord. Oh, I'm sorry. I should have sent it to the Discord. And that rich mustard color of the blazer. Love it. Oh, it looks awesome. Yeah, it does. I would wear both of those. Maybe not together, but both of those. They're really cool. Um, so that's Bert. That's awesome. That's almost identical to yeah, the the iconography of my middle school team. Um, right down to the deep blue and mustard yellow. Those are the colors of my swim team. The blue and yellow. It was cool. But I love that cardigan. In 1954, Wilma's basketball coach started a girls' track team. His goal was to make sure the basketball players continued to work out and stay healthy during the offseason. Wilma joined and left her teammates in the dust during these casual track meets they had. Her speed earned her the nickname Skeeter because she flew around the track and court like a mosquito. Uh, so, yeah, that's one of her nicknames. That's a <laughs> one of cool the cool name, actually. One of many, yes. As far as nicknames goes, that's that's that you could do a lot worse. <laughs> True. Than Skeeter. The only Skeeters I can really think of are like um, Doug. You know the show Doug. That was my uh, first thought. I was like his yeah. his friend Skeeter, and Hong then Kong. the <laughs> yeah, and then the the book The Help by Catherine Stockett. I think it was. I think her name is Skeeter, but I didn't realize it was short for anything. Like I just thought it was a very odd name. But maybe it's mosquito. I don't know. Uh, anyway, in this case, it is to mosquitoes as skeeters. My kids do too, but mostly because they can't speak right yet. <laughs> it might be my dad as well. <laughs> oh boy! Now a basketball star, Wilma caught the eye of Ed Temple, Tennessee State University's women's track coach, who also, luckily, happened to referee local high school basketball games quite the chance there he whisked Wilma away from the basketball court and took her under his wing including her in his summer track program during which she met Jackie Robinson who would remain one of her biggest heroes throughout her life he meant a lot yeah. to her yeah how yes, old was super she cool this, this all went down and she's meeting Jackie Robinson I'm trying About to 14 oh, oh yeah wow. yeah you're 14 you're yeah bullets. oh yeah yeah that's awesome yeah. that's really cool yeah, and I believe later on, and you can totally delete this if not, I believe later on she dedicated, uh, I don't know if it was one of her events or one of her medals to Jackie Robinson and all the work he did in sport. Wilma's dedicated training and natural talent as a runner soon brought her all the way to the 1956 Summer Olympics in Melbourne, Australia, where her team took the bronze medal in the 400-meter relay. A baton used in a relay a few years later is on display at the museum in Clarksville. Her first Just medal stick. came when she was 16. Yes. She had a bronze cool. medal when she was 16. She went back to school and showed off her bronze medal because she was 16, just gone to the Olympics, and that is awesome. So, yes, she was also the youngest American athlete at the Olympics that year. She also, like, if this is correct, it's insane to me because it says her weight was 89 pounds, which is crazy because she's 16, but also because she's 5'11". That's insane. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. So that is real thin. Yeah, all muscle. <laughs> yeah. Wilma returned home to Tennessee to finish high school and continue her training. But tensions rose when she found out she was pregnant her senior year. 
Her parents told her to break off contact with the baby's father, Robert Eldridge. Keep that name in the back of your mind for later, okay? Wilma gave birth to her daughter Yolanda in 1958, just weeks before starting her first semester at Tennessee State University on a full scholarship. Her coach, Ed Temple, because he remember he was the university coach, so he had already had a rapport with her. So her coach wasn't thrilled about Wilma having a baby and allowed her to remain on the track team only on the condition that she not have contact with her daughter. What? Yeah. So baby Yolanda was sent to live with Wilma's sister in Missouri. This was understandably too painful for Wilma, who eventually managed to work it out and have her mother, Blanche, take care of Yolanda in her hometown of Clarksville instead. And it wasn't just an arrangement they worked out. Like, Wilma and the baby daddy, Robert, I don't know if they're still together at this point, but they basically drove to Missouri to basically take Yolanda back. Because... That's horrible. I was telling Scott this last night. I was like, that is so awful. And obviously, if she's she's got a full ride to college, you don't want to lose that. So she's kind of between a rock and a hard place there. Like, But she's postpartum. She just had this baby. Right. If you're a coach and you're like, my goal is to make my athlete focus more, I know what I'll do. Separate them from your their child. It's like, uh, not just... necessarily... No, that's horrible. And look, I can tell you that, and you guys know, having a baby is... You're not going to make that work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But having a baby is craziness. Like, having a child is all-consuming. But this is not the answer. (laughs) Uh, But also something interesting that I read uh, is that Ed Temple was not paid for his work as a track coach. I think he was a professor of, I want to say sociology at the university and he did this in his off time so he would like use his car to take his athletes to and from meets and things like that so he would it's crazy that in this time like thinking about how well-funded college sports are nowadays it was just right not this is a common this is a common thing in a lot of high school sports here in the past i don't know right now but like i think 20 years ago this was a common thing yeah. in like high school sports where your 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 team coaches they were just they were teachers and substitute teachers and whatnot and they're like oh yeah i know football yeah i'll come coach football too like unless you were a big program your coaches were not people that were being paid extra to be coaches yeah that's wild but yeah this is also the time when the olympics were still primarily for amateurs so there wasn't financial gain really it's not like the athletes we have today where it's their full-time career yeah well and i mean there's still i mean lots of articles and documentaries written about financial or made about financial hardship for even current you know olympic athletes you know it's still there's a lot more money in it now but i think it's still essentially an amateur that's that's you know always kind of been the hopeful gist of it True. With always major exceptions like Dream Team and stuff like that, but yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely more money now, but I, I I know what you're saying. Yeah, and I mean, this was such, especially like track and field. This was such a huge sport. She was a household name. You know, it's kind of wild to think that she wasn't being paid for a lot of this. And basically, I can't imagine going into a full training mode when you're postpartum. Oh, oh my yeah. god. Yeah, like, 
I don't know about other women. Maybe they, maybe I just had a rough time, but like I could barely walk upstairs when I had my kids. But yeah, it, it's, it's craziness. It's wild. All right. So despite the gut-wrenching separation from her child, Wilma continued to have success in her sport during her college years, leading up to the 1960s, sorry, leading up to the 1960 Olympics in Rome, Italy. That would make her a household name. After setting a world record in the 200-meter dash during the trials, Wilma qualified for three events in the Olympic Games. The 100-meter sprint, the 200-meter sprint, and the four-person 100-meter relay. Interestingly, her time of 11 seconds in the 100-meter dash would have been a world record if the wind hadn't exceeded the allowable wind speed threshold for setting a record. So basically, her time was faster than anyone else's time, but because the wind was at, I don't know, I want to say it was like two point something miles per hour. It didn't count as a record. Yeah, that's a common thing. If the wind's like at your back and it's over a certain amount, they they consider it aiding you, which is kind of hilarious, but I get it. That makes sense. So it just means in that instance, no, you can't record any records. But Especially still, like, if you're 5'11 you and 89 pounds. A strong gust will literally propel you off the ground. So by this time, <laughs> by this time, she's 130 pounds, which is still very oh, okay. skinny. That's, <laughs> that's still oh, super, yeah. super skinny. But yeah, more, yeah. more in the realm of, 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 you know, kind of reality, I guess, for that age. I was kind of mis misplacing the age there. Yeah, she's now uh, 20 years old. But yeah, Wilma became the first woman to win three gold medals in a single Olympic Games. She was hailed as the fastest woman in the world. Her athletic feats earned her various nicknames, the Black Gazelle, the Black Pearl, the Tornado, and many more. It seems- I like the Tornado the most of those three, for sure. <laughs> Especially with that wind helping her. Well, yeah, but the other ones all leading with Black are just a little hot and on the nose. Like, I, I kind of get it in terms of vernacular back then, but just keep with Skeeter, man. Skeeter's good. So uh, the Black Gazelle, I believe, was the Italians called her that. And the Black Pearl, I think that was a French. So it was. Oh, gotcha, it sounded okay. prettier because you didn't know that it was a little racist. Right. <laughs> yeah, that definitely puts a Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lateral move, but I feel a little better. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seemed that people couldn't get enough of Wilma. But that was nothing compared to the reception she received in her own hometown. Yeah, people were, like, really obsessed with her at this point. I would imagine. Oh, yeah. my goodness. And and it, she really does look like a gazelle. Like, here, let me send a picture to you guys so you have an idea. I don't know if I mentioned, but she is beautiful. She's absolutely gorgeous. She looks like a model. She's 5'11". And there is, like, this great, like, this powerful grace to her when she's running. Like, her form. I don't know anything about running, guys, but it's just lovely like she's so like she looks like a ballerina okay let me post it to our discord and especially when it's compared to like people around her and they all look like you know normal people huffing and puffing and running and she just looks Graceful. again like a dancer yeah oh wow yeah yeah she... i feel like i've almost seen that like her silhouette has almost been like copied for statues and logos and stuff especially from that first image yeah yeah really cool. there is a statue in uh clarksville actually now and i do think it's based on that last picture i sent yeah 
Oh, cool. But yeah, look, everyone behind her is like trying, and she's there like, I'm a swan. <laughs> yeah, everyone else looks like they're having to do a half hour run after work. Yep. I just got to get it in. The Fitbit's yelling at me. <laughs> I think, is that last picture from like the 1956? I'm not sure, but I do think that's what the statue was based on. Here, I'll send you the statue. I do think it was this one. Oh, cool. And she does look very slim in statue form, so maybe it was That one younger. looks a little slimmer than, yeah, that one. A little too slim, maybe. Just, well, that could just be the angle of the shot, too. Like, the angle of the shot doesn't... Yeah. Like, it's way below eye level as opposed to the thing it's based on, so it kind of has a different... Mm. Um, but yeah. Yeah, oh, it's cool. it's pretty cool. I feel like that statue would be unstable, though, because she's on her, on her front foot, and that's like... I don't know. I feel like it would break really easy. That might actually explain the portions. Why she doesn't have a huge calf on that back foot. Not that she does normally, but it looks a little thinner. Oh, that's true. Yeah, the like foot is like pencil thin. A balance thing. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Okay. I certainly have never sculpted a statue. So this is all just BS coming out of my mouth. But no. Probably bronze as well. I, no, I get it. Yeah. I, and uh, it looks indoors there. I do think it's outdoors now, but maybe I'm wrong. We did not see that when we were in Clarksville. After her victories at the Rome Olympics, Wilma embarked on a European goodwill tour before returning home. And that's when we go flashback to the intro when we had Welcome Wilma Day. And because she insisted that she would not be attending two separate parades and banquets, one for the whites and one for the blacks. Good for her. They made it the first desegregated event in the town and they actually just like caved with no pushback they caved and it's interesting because that's great the the mayor not the mayor sorry the governor at the time ran on a staunch segregationist platform so i don't know i guess she probably had the, she probably had the celebrity juice at the time oh I mean, she totally did with that much that much hardware from uh the competition yeah, having her roots there. I bet, yeah, she probably did have actually the weight and clout to do that. That's cool. Yeah, hometown hero carrying that much gold. It's um, very, very poor timing to be like, to snub her. Yeah. Like, they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't do it. Well, and on her her point, very, very good time to be taking a stand like that when you got the, yeah. the ability. No, I mean, not that it's not good to do so when you don't have the ability, but when you got that juice to make it, might as well use it. Yes. Leverage what you have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And it's interesting because in the museum, and I get it because it's the town museum, they really portray it as, hey, look, this is when our town solved racism. And <laughs> this is, you know, oh, the God. first desegregated <laughs> event. Very much those vibes, you know. So very complimentary of the town. They mentioned, they, they threw in a little speech that, uh, I want to say it was the commissioner. I don't think it was the mayor that he gave that said, oh, it's it's like, this is so beautiful because, you know, you can play the black keys on the piano and it's lovely. You can play the white keys on, and it's lovely. But Oof. but we're a whole fucking piano now. Anyway, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. They're all still figuring this out. They're still, they're still figuring their way through the... <laughs> talking about this with kind of a tiny bit of slack but oh my yeah i mean they're only about an hour away from music city so <laughs> that, that gets a southern 
that gets a southern bless your heart yeah but yeah <laughs> things don't it's not like this is kind of the end to things here in terms of you know jim crow it'll take a while as we'll see in a bit yeah yeah all right well anyway she was on top of the world so let's stay there for a minute <laughs> With the New York Times reporting that she spent her days fielding marriage proposals and replying to fan mail, leaving little time for much else. I have to say it's interesting here, just a side note, because it seems like the press didn't have information about Wilma being a mother, you know. So in one interview, hmm. in one interview, they asked her, oh, would you like to have children someday? And that's not a question you would ask someone that you knew had children. And she replied, oh, yeah, one day, uh, probably like two daughters or something. So she just sidestepped the whole thing, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I Interesting. mean, I mean, this is pre-social media. So like interviews were actually learn learn like, used to like learn about someone. So again, yeah. it's stuff to like recontextualize based on the time and what was available then. But interesting that she just decided not to even mention, though, that would certainly shorten the amount of follow up questions, which is maybe was maybe her goal. And also, I mean, when she told her track coach, he's like, yeah, no, don't don't have anything to do with that child. So it's not like. It's not like she had a positive experience when, you know, mentioning her daughter before. Yeah, yeah. Very good point there. It's also just not good for the optics like the the Olympics were very much a storytelling time because, you know, this is in the middle of the Cold War and sports are very important. and the life stories of these athletes were extra important. So it was just, you know, it would fit the conservative ideal and narrative to just make her out to be this young woman who's, you know, single and unmarried and totally, you know, didn't experience any life is just all about the gold medal, you know, mm. having a child out of wedlock would probably not fit into that, you know? Oh yeah. Good point. I wasn't really thinking in terms of, yeah, being able to pull the implications out of that. I mean, this is the 60s, so. Yeah. There was also a lot of uh, racial stereotypes, and you didn't want to be an unwed Black mother in the white spotlight <laughs> at this time. Right. All right, well, Wilma managed to fit dating into her busy life because in October of 1961, she married William Ward, a track athlete studying in North Carolina. But that relationship seemed to sour pretty fast with rumors that suggested he didn't treat Wilma very well. After that, uh, she retired from her track and field career at the age of 22 when she was at her best, uh, which is an interesting choice. But she wanted to, you know, focus on her career. She graduated a year later from Tennessee A&I State University with a degree in education. So she wanted to focus on that and more local projects. Remember when we talked about how wonderful the town of Clarksville was in welcoming her when mm -hmm. she got back from Rome? Okay, so keep that in mind. <laughs> in 1963, just a couple of days after graduating from college, Wilma joined hundreds of her black neighbors in the hometown. Sorry, Wilma joined hundreds of her black neighbors to protest one of the last few segregated eateries in the area in the town and so Wilma knew that the press would follow her anywhere basically at this time so she joined and became sort of the face of this protest so there is a very famous 
photo of her standing in front of this one specific restaurant. And there, are, I think there was three total that were still segregated. But there's this very famous photo where she's standing outside and being refused entry. And I'm not sure. I know this is a regional restaurant, but I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Shoney's? Do you know Shoney's? No. I've... Nope. Never heard of it, actually. Scott, you want to talk about Shoney's? <clears throat> Shoney's is a very large regional restaurant as far as, like, we had them in Florida and they were in Georgia. I had them up in Maryland. Um, I don't know if they're still around right now. But they, they are were at least around. Oh, they are. Okay, I remember. Yeah. I mean, I last time I went to a Shoney's was in the mid aughts. Um, but it, it's basically just like a well, at least the one ones I went to were buffets, um, kind of like Golden Corral or, or oh, the other one, or like Ryan's Steakhouse kind of thing, only on maybe a smaller scale. We used to go okay. there for breakfast buffet. Gotcha. I can I can wrap my brain around a Golden Corral. I think we have a couple of those in Montana. I've never been to any of those. Uh, so never go for the chocolate fountain. Oh God! Just imagine mm, all the little no. kids with their hands in there. I don't even know if they have it post COVID, but well, I'd go for the soft there. yogurt, the, the the soft uh, ice yogurt ice cream machine. <laughs> okay. Always. Didn't your brother anyway. get sick at a Shoney's? I'm sure everyone who's ever been to a Shoney's has gotten sick at a Shoney's at one point, and they still went back. Hey, that, then I imagined Yikes. correctly with the Golden Corral. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, so let me send you this picture of her outside. She, again, she did this very, I feel like it was a very calculated move because she knew the press would come and pay attention to this when, when Wilma Rudolph, star, was there. Oh, they didn't even like, they, they were just like, cl- they're hiding behind the doors. Oh yeah, with them locked. Oh yeah, and they, oh, wow. oh, there were people again. This is like three hundred black people, you know, start having a peaceful protest, and white people just jeering at them, mocking them, you know, all all these things. So you have, and, and it's interesting because the local press really sanitized it. They said, "Oh yeah, um, it was mostly peaceful," although uh, the protesters were harassed, and they didn't mention all the stuff that you know. Wilma saw and Wilma faced. So we have this hometown hero who is celebrated upon her her arrival from, upon her return from the Olympics, you know, getting a parade, a banquet, you know, being remembered in the local museum as part of the local, of the tapestry of the city's history. And right now, She's being tear gassed in front of a Shoney's, you know, so it's it definitely. Oh, they did tear gas him. Oh, yeah. Although they did not mention that in the local papers. And this was a really rough time for her. This was really sickening. And she had a hard time wrapping her brain around the fact that, you know, she went from Welcome Wilma Day, a, a townwide event, to being tear gassed by local white people <sighs> but racism was solved mm-hmm. yeah anyway today there are two shonies in clarksville one of them is on wilma rudolph boulevard and i imagine it's no longer segregated well uh, no, no. oh jesus <laughs> come on Stop. come on I, I love the irony of it, though. But no, it, it actually uh, desegregated the town, went into, like, hyper uh, 
image control mode and like uh, PR mode because they were like, oh shit. As we, a result Wilma. of the protest? As the result. At, oh my God, I can't speak today. As the result of Wilma showing up and basically having all of the press come after him being like, what are you doing? What's going on? Let's see Wilma. And they caught sight of that. So then they were like, oh shit, we got to make our PR move. So yeah. Yeah, she brought attention to this protest and and used her fame and power for civil rights, which is pretty cool. So again, she divorced uh, William Ward. They had a very short marriage. Then she remarried in the summer of 1963, actually the same summer that the Shoney's incident happened, this time to Robert Eldridge, her high school sweetheart. Remember that name? Remember I said to keep it in mind? Yeah. Yep. That's... Yep, I was thinking Eldridge being. Okay. So Robert Eldridge is the father of Wilma's daughter, Yolanda, who would have been about five years old when her parents got married. And together, Wilma and Robert had three more children, Joanna, Robert Jr., and Zuri, and were married for almost two decades before divorcing. So Wilma worked as a teacher for a while. Uh, she also taught physical education, and she had a few different uh, jobs. And then in the 80s, she became the coach for, okay, I'm going to mess up the, <laughs> the pronunciation, DePaul. D-E-P-A-U-W. I should have looked up how to pronounce that. DePaul. <laughs> Sounds close enough. What was what was the organization? No, it was a university. DePaul. Oh, DePaul. Is, am I say, did I say it wrong? It's a weird name. Anyway, DePaul University, where she was the director of the women's track program. She also funded a nonprofit organization, the Wilma Rudolph Foundation. And she said that that was some of her most important work throughout her life, which is really cool. There were also weird rumors being spread around in newspapers that she was indigent, quote unquote indigent, that she didn't have enough money and she was barely surviving with her three kids. I think it was before the fourth one was born. And that uh, she was selling her medals, her gold medals, for her to live on. But she claimed that wasn't true. Um, do, what's, what's, so what's the Wilma, Wilma Rudolph foundation? Do you, did you go into that much? Yes, I, I did. I, I love her story again. Okay. So what's the, the foundation's purpose or what's its aim? She, it, it was basically an amateur sports program and okay. yeah. So she said that was very important work for her. And then, yeah, I mean, that's the thing with Wilma. There's a lot that happens in her life but it happens early on it's also a very short life because in 94 i believe it was when she was 54 she died of brain cancer it was like a very quick thing uh, yeah i know it and she died it's some sources said nashville other sources said brentwood but she died in tennessee and brentwood's a suburb of nashville oh okay yeah that's where your father had went to church right yeah, he went to Brooklyn Baptist. Yeah, it was a a rough later half, and it's kind of hard to end it on such a low note. But I did want to go into disability because I know it is such a small part of her life, but it is the foundational years. And a lot of her legacy was treated as though she was this very inspirational figure because she quote unquote overcame disability and mm. yeah and you know i i hate that overcoming narrative 
because it's not fair to anyone because you're not getting the story right. It was her formative years. She never really got over or overcame that. It was just part of the fabric of who she was, just like she could never overcome being Black, right? Like this, these are essential parts of your identity. The counterpoint I would maybe say, the counterpoint to that just being devil's advocate a little bit would be that, you know, specifically polio being part of the national consciousness at that you know, particular stage in its history, you know, I'm sure her overcoming that beyond race and, you know, our kind of current look at disability narrative, um, that might have been a latching point for reporters. I'm trying, I always try to see like the empathy rather than the 21st, not always, but uh, rather than I like get that. But here's, here's something interesting that I, I saw too, in her official obituary in the New York Times, it's interesting because the author never mentions polio and i was like that's so weird because he mentions other childhood illnesses like pneumonia and scarlet fever but he doesn't go into polio at all which i understand if you're not going to mention it if you don't mention anything but he mentions other illnesses and polio would Hmm. be what people said caused her left leg to become paralyzed and weaker so i don't know why the obituary didn't mention that but yeah i see your point not saying it's necessarily how I would like my story to be framed or anything, certainly not, you know, in contemporary times, but I'm just trying to think in terms of like, you know, you're a, a reporter back in that time, not having a lot of other sources. Who knows? You know, that's could certainly be a source of frustration for some, for sure. Yeah, I think my issue with that is that she she did so many things that were more important than walking. <laughs> And and I mean the <laughs> the running and like I get it yes you have the uh the story arc of like not being able to walk and then being the fastest person ever in that time period but it just feel like the overcoming narrative feels like it takes over her story and kind of places a shadow over like what she actually had to go through like in the in the early nineties a few years before she passed away. She went back to the Shoney's where the protest took place and to, I I don't know if it was a meeting, uh, I I don't know if it was a political meeting or if it was an interview, but she actually had such, she felt so horrible there and had such bad flashbacks of what happened to her that she couldn't remain there. Like she had to go to another place to do that interview. So that's just very telling of how she processed that. And right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a wild story. She did a lot of amazing things. She had a really short life, unfortunately. Um, and then one of the... there There's a whole bunch of other little tidbits and facts I want to mention too, but something interesting about this is that when Scott and I first started dating and he brought me home for the first time to meet his family, he... we oh, uh, <laughs> I thought that sentence was going in a different direction. Nice save. <laughs> <laughs> when Proceed. he brought me sorry, when he brought me to Tennessee to meet his family, we were stopped at Wilma Rudolph Boulevard and I was like, Oh Wilma, cool, she's one of us. And he was like, What do you mean? And I said, you know, she she had a disability. She had polio as a child and and you know, she went on to become an Olympic champion. And Scott didn't know that. He hadn't heard about that, but he did tell me that he said, Oh Wilma, that's my grandma's friend. What? Yeah. So 
I, I don't know the full depth of the relationship, but they did know each other. And when my brother was doing a book report, you know, in the early 90s on Wilma Rudolph, because, you know, we all did various, you know, all that time. Um, he, I think my mom had told him to call my grandmother. And he calls my grandmother and my grandmother, oh, you're doing a book report on Wilma Rudolph. That's really cool. Give this phone number a call. So, oh, well, he, he calls this phone number and Wilma Rudolph picks up. That's wild. <laughs> Just yeah. dry panic. I would the, no amount of questions or anything would. I hope he and he had no no forewarning. Oh, this was elementary school too. Oh um, my gosh! Uh, I, if you're a child, you can't grasp the enormous. Maybe you're a little nah, bit more. It, okay, it, was, yeah, it was it was it was really cool. It was just really cool, you know. That is. That's cool. awesome. But there is one other random thing that you I know that you uh, wanted to mention, but kind of skipped by. Are we talking about Cassius? Uh-huh. Okay, so speaking of your brother being awestruck when he was speaking to Wilma Rudolph, someone else who was awestruck when they met her was a young Cassius Clay in the 1960 Olympics. He was, I believe, two years younger than her and had a massive crush on Wilma and never, oh, that makes sense. never really pursued it much because he was apparently a shy young guy and he was famously... uh not very faithful to partners later on but i guess he he was shy in his earlier years and they had a lifelong friendship like he came to the 1977 premiere of her tv movie about her life uh which i actually saw when i was a really little kid but i don't remember much of the details other than she couldn't run and then she ran <laughs> Excellent. Like a excellent recap. Thank you. I was a little but girl. Is that the official synopsis? It could be. It's a '70s TV movie. Are you? I mean, it was very expectations high on production value. It was very heavy on the inspiration. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure. Oh yeah, but yeah, he had a huge crush on her, and I don't know if anything came of that. But they look a little cozy in plenty of photos. Here, I'll send you some. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. Scandalous. Well, you know what they say about Olympic villages. It's just uh, bang yeah. town for the whole world. It's yeah. International bang town. Although so I don't know if it was back then. I did read <laughs> I did read something where it said that Cassius Clay, again, this is before he was Muhammad Ali, that he got to know her really well in the Olympic village. So I thought in my 21st century mind, oh, they hooked up. Okay. But then it said something about a platonic friendship, and I was like, oh, all right, whatever. But anyway, <laughs> here she is with him. Oh, cute. Yeah, they're cute. But then there were other images. I know I saved them. Where are they? They were super cozy together. <laughs> they were so cute, too. Yeah, she really didn't have a good romantic life. Like, she didn't really have romantic success. I would say very like long term romantic success. Well, yes, I don't know about the short term. I don't know about those. No, my point being is, is it's just hard to speak on like you know whether or not someone has romantic success, how they feel about it at the time, how they reflect on it. You know, it, it's a. I just feel like it's um, it's a bit of a, a misleading statement. She also was like, okay, I know this is, this is very light and fluffy and a little bit uh shallow because this is such a 
an important story, but she also dressed amazingly. Like she had such a good fashion sense. I kind of got that sense. Oh, they are very cozy there. Right? He's got his hand around her. Yeah, that's they look a little bit friendly. More of a pose, post photos for photo shoot as well. Yeah, obviously that that's definitely photo shoot for sure. But yeah, no, they. But yeah, that's they look close. Mm -hmm. And then in the seventies, she had like this full seventies glam vibe. I'll show you. She's got like this big hair. She's got like a beautiful smile. And she, oh, there was one article actually that she had been talking about. I, I don't. I think it was the New York Times, actually. She was talking about how her daughter, her her daughter Yolanda, who was about 12 at the time, was starting to run track. And the article specifically mentioned that Wilma was now 20 pounds heavier, as if that was super important. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Which, That's 150 yeah. pounds at 5'11", like, you're still very thin. Yeah. yeah. Oh, in this picture, because it's such a sparkly outfit and i'm obsessed with it and i want it that skirt <laughs> that's a creepy death stare from the guy she's hugging though there were a lot of creepy men in this era like i don't know if no one knew how to smile <laughs> oh and here is the coloring book i was talking about earlier what is that oh hell oh right oh man oh that's what? a big oof. That's, that's a big that's oof. That's a big oof. Oh, yeah. They gave that's her like one a... you're going to have to post to the socials. Oh, man. Oh, they gave her a very masculine <clears throat> face, a giant nose that's bigger than her thumb, and like very close-cropped hair. And and the body looks sort of looks like her, but the ugh, the face is just rough. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that was um was a poor decision on their part. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is the story of Wilma Glodin Rudolph. That was good stuff. Well worth the hype. <laughs> I want to go out in a bang, but also she just fucking died of cancer at 54. Well, that's also kind of the end of probably most of our stories at this point. Yay, microplastics. <sighs> Yeah, oh, so, no, Jesus. I mean, that's, that's not necessarily. No, that, I mean, no, that's it is tragic, especially going that that young. I mean, I lost my mom not too long after that and in terms of age. And yeah, no, that is tragically young for sure. And that's life of Wilma Rudolph. For more, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Lame History and on Instagram at Lame History Podcast. Questions or notes for us? Reach out to lamehistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're always interested in hearing about additional research, corrections, or episode ideas. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>